0: the Earth Destruction Directive. Directive. Directive 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 Hello everyone and welcome to Earth Destruction Directive. I am your host as always Mr. Luke Jackinetti. I'd like to thank everyone for downloading and listening to the show today, and I hope everyone enjoyed our last episode where we took a look at Destroy All Monsters, the extremely fan favorite uh, monster Mash from 1968, along with, uh, for Marvel Comics, Avengers number 197, which was the prelude to War Devil. This time out, we are taking a look, uh, we're going a little bit farther back in Toho's catalog. We're taking a look at 1955's Half Human, a legendary lost monster film from Toho, featuring a Japanese take on the abominable snowman. And continuing our uh, look at... Uh, uh you know later appearances of the characters from Marvel Godzilla we have Avengers volume 1 number 198 which uh follows the avengers struggle against red ronin after being set up in the last issue a little bit of news as i record this we are on the final countdown Do-do-do-do. 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 to godzilla king of the monsters which is set to be released here in the United States on May 31st, a very short time away as I'm recording this. Now, similar to what I did for Godzilla 2014, the first legendary Godzilla, I have been avoiding as much information about this film as possible, including not watching any of the trailers or B-roll footage since that second trailer, since the, uh, the one that came out a few months ago. Uh, The promotional media is really ramped up. It's been all over the place on social media, on television. Uh, Posters uh, are now up at all the the movie theaters that I've been to for the last uh, month or so. Uh, So I am really trying my best to go in as cold as possible for this film in order to let the in-theater experience inform me. Um, I did that, like I said, with Godzilla 2014, and I thought that really helped. I, I'm trying to do that a lot with movies that I'm interested in seeing. Uh, it's not always possible. Sometimes it's just wall-to-wall uh, stuff and you can't avoid it, but I'm doing my best. So um, very much looking forward to King of the Monsters. Hopefully we'll be able to see it opening weekend and get you a, uh, some thoughts here. But uh, I definitely will be following up with that once I do see the film. Now, on a related note, the King of the Monsters toys are out in wide release in Walmart here in the States. They are, I believe, Walmart exclusives. So if you are so inclined, go check out the toy sections and start hunting. These are by Jack Specific, we've talked about these before. Uh, there's some Versus sets with Godzilla fighting the other monsters in the film, uh, Rodan, King Ghidorah, and Mothra, and then some larger sets with uh, just Rodan and King Ghidorah. There's also a very large Godzilla, and apparently the Godzilla electronic mask, uh, which I have not personally seen, is uh, something of a uh, uh, an item to hunt down because it's not not super common. Uh, but uh, I'm, uh, I'll probably end up with at least a few of these toys, as I said, especially considering you know the presence of Rodan, Mothra, and King Ghidorah. Uh, I do love those characters, especially Rodan, who's a favorite of mine for a long, long time. Uh, so I'll probably get some of those at some point. Now, speaking of Mothra, Mill Creek Entertainment, well-loved on Earth Destruction Directive for their releases, of Ultraman in a very budget-conscious format on DVD, they have announced that the original 1961 Mothra, which we've covered on this very podcast, will be released on Blu-ray this summer here in the States. Now, This is a Steelbook release, it'll be released on June 9th. You can pre-order it now, I have done so. And the release is going to feature both the Japanese and U.S. theatrical releases. There's some slight differences between them, not a not a huge difference, but a little bit. And apparently, it's also going to have a feature-length commentary from well-known G fans, uh, Steve Rifle and Ed Godzawiski. It's also going to have uh, usual trailers, photo galleries, that sort of stuff. Frankly, this looks like a great pickup. I know when I pre-ordered it, it was the number one pre-order. In Blu-rays on Amazon at the time so obviously there's a lot of interest in this very eager to see this uh, Colorful, you know sometimes overlooked movie on Blu-ray. We talked about that when we when we talked about Mothra that sometimes uh, Compared to Godzilla vs. The Thing from a few years later The original Mothra gets overlooked, but it's a really good movie and it should look great on Blu-ray. So uh, definitely uh, looking forward to getting that one in the mail and being able to check it out uh, on uh, in high-def glory. Uh, shifting gears to television, the Ultraman anime has debuted on Netflix. So if you have that service, uh, please go and check it out. Uh, I'm four episodes into the show. Um, it's 22-minute episodes, kind of a standard half-hour anime. So uh, it's it's easy to watch an episode here and there as I get time. So far, it's been a really strong adaption. Um, uh, the first four episodes essentially uh, adapt to the first two Tonkabons of the manga, uh, but I find that it stands pretty tall on its own. Uh, it's a worthwhile viewing experience, even if uh, uh, you haven't read the manga. My friend Joe and I watched a few of the uh, first uh, three episodes, and he's not read the manga, and he really liked it as well. I'm really digging the look of the show. Which is a mix of traditional hand, cell, and computer-style animation. It gives it a very unique look, uh, and I think it really fits the high-tech theme of the show. So it's very cool so far. Now, if you've watched the show, please write in let us know what you thought about it. Uh, My goal is to get halfway through the through the uh, season. There's uh, 13 episodes out right now. So either at the if, if there's a good breaking point at either six or seven. I plan to, uh, once I get there, I'll do a guided episode to cover the first half of the season so we can talk about it. Uh, that's all the news I have. Do you have any news? Anything you want to share? Go ahead and email us, earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com, and we'll get it out there for everybody to hear about it. All right, I'm going to take a quick break, and then when we come back, we're going to get right on in to Half Human. Coming soon from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Working together, we saved the planet. And I believe that if we stayed together as a team, we would be a force that could truly work for the ideals of peace and justice. Every episode. My name is Jean. I'm a Martian. Every adventure. (sighs) Okay, you guys are so slow. Every hero. Whatever you think you're doing, if you present a threat to the world, the Justice League will take you down. Cindy and Chris Franklin bring you... JLU cast. J.L.U. cast. Whatever the future holds, we'll make those choices ourselves. Don't say you don't love me. I'll never say that. Covering the complete animated run of Justice League and Justice League Unlimited. And the adventure continues. Their strength in numbers. What? Like a bunch of super friends? More like a Justice League. Alright, we are back on Earth Destruction Directive. Half Human was released on August 14th, 1955 in Japan under the title Jujin Yuki Otoko, which literally translates as Monster Snowman. The film made its way over to the U.S. on December 10th, 1958, courtesy of Distributors Corporation of America, on a double bill with a giant bug movie, Monster from Green Hell. We'll discuss the U.S. version in a bit, because uh, we got to get into that somewhat. Our writer is Takeo Murata, credited as screenwriter on Godzilla, Godzilla Raids again, Rodan, and some other uh, Toho non-sci-fi films from the era, uh, along with Shigeru Kayama, who is credited with the story for those same early Toho efforts, so the two of them um, often wrote as a team. Our special effects are by Eji Subaraya, uh, the music is by Masaru Sato, who you probably remember best um, as having done the, essentially do the Godzilla film scores not done by Ifakube. So he did Godzilla Raids again, Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster, Son of Godzilla, uh, Godzilla vs. Mech Godzilla from 1974, also did the score to the H-Man. And our director is Inishiro Honda, and our producer is Tomoyuki Tanaka. And our summary comes courtesy of Toho Kingdom, which of course you can find at TohoKingdom.com. Five young friends, university students, have come to the Japanese Alps in Nagano during New Year's for a skiing vacation. Among them are Takashi Ajima, his girlfriend Machiko Takano, her elder brother Kayoshi Takano, and their friends Nakata and Kaji. The team meets with grave misfortune, though, when Kaji and Takano wind up vanishing in the blizzard. Though Kaji is found deceased, Takano remains unaccounted for. What makes this affair so bizarre is that unusual patches of fur and large footprints are discovered nearby. With the help of renowned zoologist Dr. Koizumi, the three survivors from an expedition and return to the area in the spring. However, when they venture into the dreaded Garan Valley, their guides swiftly take leave. One night, a mysterious figure wanders into camp and begins to caress Michiko's face. In the ensuing chaos, the creature flees with Takashi in close pursuit, but the latter takes a rough tumble down a steep incline and finds himself in the midst of another party. It turns out that a carnival owner named Oba and his henchmen were closely observing the students' activities, concerned that they would stumble across the monster that Oba was so digitally seeking to exploit for profit. After a violent struggle, Takashi takes yet another tumble and awakens in a secret village nursed back to health by a local young woman named Chika. It turns out that this hidden community treats the beast that Takashi had early encountered as their master. The violent tribal chief, intolerant of the interference of outsiders, harshly punishes Chika and has Takashi strung from the edge of a precipice. Appalled by such wretched treatment, Chika makes a deal with two of Oba's henchmen, both of whom she believes to be Takashi's fellow students. She reveals the location of the monster's cave in return for the promise of getting to meet the other members of the party. Meanwhile, the enigmatic creature, resembling some sort of an ape-man, appears at the precipice with a freshly killed carcass of a deer slung over its shoulders. Takeshi is then reeled in by the beast, who surprisingly sets the young man free. And then the monster leaves. Oba's men arrive at the hulking hominid's cave and capture the ape-man's young son. When the boy's father returns from the hunt, the child is used as bait and the drop of a net and swift application of a sedative-soaked rag, a little bit of movie ether there, quickly subdue Oba's quarry. The young uh, a, the young snowman manages to escape and later drops in on the caged truck by which Oba prepares to transport his prize out of the valley. Alas, the child is also captured, but when his father regains consciousness, it strangles the driver through the bars and uses its immense strength to pry open the back hatch. After a series of unsuccessful shots, Oba's very last bullet, downs the young snowman. The enraged father makes very short work of the sinister carnival owner and in an inconsolable rage further attacks the hidden village, killing the tribal chief in the process. Takashi finally makes it back to camp and reverts that the furry behemoth he had encountered resembles reports of the abominable snowman. Shortly thereafter, the lumbering cryptid approaches the camp and in the ensuing confusion Michiko is kidnapped. With the help of Chica, they tracked the pair to the snowman's cave where they managed to locate Takano's remains and his final writings. It is revealed that Takano was actually cared for by the beast following an injury sustained from an avalanche on the night of the blizzard. Unfortunately, he was very weak by the time of his writing and correctly predicted that he wouldn't make it. Further exploration reveals the existence in the cave of the Fly Agaric, a mushroom which Dr. Koizumi believes killed off the majority of the snowmen. Finally, the snowman is discovered carrying Machiko in his arms like a rag doll. Scaling a tall spielotherm, he ascends to a higher level of the cave as the others follow in close pursuit. Chica bravely distracts the snowman, allowing Machiko to escape the creature's grasp. During their struggle, the snowman endu- endures two bullet wounds, and both he and Chica ultimately plummet into a geothermically active sulfur pool below, boiled alive. Hmm, wow. <laughs> So, Half Human was, uh, this film is best known for the fact that it, it is um, extremely difficult to come by and is an extremely obscure film. And we will get into that. So, let's, let's get right into our notes. Now, Half Human was planned by Toho even before Gojua was released uh, the year earlier in 1954. Now, this film, like several others from around the same era, were inspired by seemingly gigantic footprints found in the Himalayas by English mountaineer John Shipton. Uh, This started something of a fad surrounding the abominable snowman. Now, to me, the Japanese Alps seemed like a no-brainer for Toho to stage their own snowman movie. It's a great setting, someplace that they can relatively easily film, and it's a fairly exotic location if you want to sell this film overseas. Now, as I said, the film is most well-known for the internal banning given to it by Toho. This is very similar to how Toho would pull prophecies of Nostradamus from circulation two decades later. Now, following the original August 1955 release, Toho quietly pulled Half-Human from theaters and essentially put the film down what we would nowadays call the memory hole. It's widely accepted and believed that Toho pulled the film to avoid a public relations issue with the Burakuman organizations, Burakuman being the descendants of outcast peoples Dating all the way back to Japan's feudal era the Burakumin now this literally translates to village people or Hamlet people Were traditionally oppressed and discriminated against even after the complete disbanding of Japan's caste system And even at this point in the Showa period this was still going on The depiction of the villagers in this film is a stereotypical one with the villagers being presented as superstitious slow-witted and violent Now from that perspective, and given the success of Gojira, it makes some sort of sense that Toho would want to avoid bad press, as the early gains that the studio had made from Gojira could easily have been lost if this was dragged out and became a, a public relations issue. Now one point which I had not really considered about the Burakuman in Half Human is how it would inform the depiction of natives of various islands later on in Toho's films. Sinichi Sekizawa did love his islands, as we've seen, and those islands often had natives who worshipped the local monster god. And while the natives are shown to be superstitious, such as leaving the offerings of berry juice for Kong in King Kong vs. Godzilla on Faroe Island, they are not shown to be unintelligent or violent. Instead, if you really look at it, while they are shown to be primitive due to their isolation, they often have insights which the modern Japanese characters lack. Additionally, they're often very morally superior, uh, contrasted against the greedy, you know, air quotes, quote-unquote, civilized characters like we see in Mothra. And really, is it leaving the juice for Kong more practical than superstitious, considering that it keeps him from stomping their village? As we all know on Two True there's no such thing as a King Kong atheist. Now further muddying the waters of the film's history is the U.S. version, which is where the half-human name originates. Distributors Corporation of America bought the rights to the film and, as had been done with Gojira, re-edited the film to include Western characters. In this case, John Carradine, of all people, was added as a scientist who was telling the story to a colleague, replacing the reporter wraparound motif which is featured in the original. Now, in addition to removing Sato's score, this was not uncommon. Uh, the Western version also cuts out nearly all of the character scenes from the original, and has a running length of an astounding 63 minutes, more than half an hour shorter than the original. Uh, needless to say, the film was the B picture of its double bill with Monster from Green Hell, uh, and was quickly forgotten by most audiences. Now. Most noteworthy of this U.S. version is that there is an insert scene where we see the child snowman on a morgue table. Now, Toho actually sent the child snowman suit to the U.S. to allow this scene to be shot. Now, from all accounts that I've been able to read, this uh, was not a problem. But a couple of years later, Toho did have the problem of a U.S. production house shutting down while still in possession of two of their effect suits, namely Godzilla and Anguirus. From the original attempt at a U.S. version of Godzilla Raids Again, which was going to be called the Volcano Monsters. And we talked about this way back in the archives when we took a look at Godzilla Raids Again. This is uh, several years ago. So if you're interested in that one, go check out that episode. Now the scenery of this film is actually quite nice. Plenty of snowy landscapes and early winter scenes which transition to blooming spring in the second act. Now as I said, the use of the Japanese Alps as a setting and a Shooting location is a boon to this film. There's enough location shooting to really sell the setting well enough that you are okay with some of the soundstage work, especially in black and white. It really does look nice in those uh, early uh, location shots. Now, early on in the film, while at the cabin, we get a snowman out. as Michiko sees something furry darting about in the snow outside in the window. It turns out to be Chica wearing furs against a blizzard, which makes sense. Of course, it's only appropriate that we are introduced to Chica with her body entirely covered, as later on she gets a new wardrobe, which conveniently shows off her shapely legs. Uh, Now, this whole scene with Chica leads to the avalanche, making uh, a not unsurprising, but not bad use of stock footage, uh, as is um, you do with this sort of thing. Now, when the team is investigating the other cabin where Takano and Kaji have gone missing, they discover gigantic footprints in the snow outside the door, a direct callback to Shipton, and very typical for this type of snowman or yeti movie. This scene also features Michiko breaking down into big fat sobs. This should sound very familiar to most Godzilla fans, as Michiko is played by Momoko Kochi who played Emiko in Gojira, and cries in the exact same manner in both films. Now, despite her early Toho starlet status, Kochi would only appear in two more science fiction films, The Mysterians a couple of years later, and then her reprise as Emiko in Godzilla vs. Destoroyah, which we talked about a few months ago. Actually, she actually left Toho following The Mysterians and became primarily a stage actress. Now, having her and Akira Takarada in the same film. Uh, as the leads in this one, much appreciated, of course. Takarada plays our hero, and uh, he's a well-known guy he played. Uh, we'll talk about him in a little bit. Now, While the team is camping in the mysterious Gorn Valley, this really st- was weird. It appears that there's a co-ed tent, which we have Machiko in a tent sleeping next to a male cohort. That struck me as just outlandish for 1955 Japan. Now, We eventually learned this character is her younger brother Shinsuke, so this is not really as scandalous as it initially seems when I was watching it. This scene is more important in that it gives us our first glimpse of the snowman, as we see a shadow uh, on the canvas of the tent, and then his hand reaching in and caressing Machiko's cheek. This is followed by a super quick reveal of his whole body. The snowman very much reminds me of the Toho King Kong and his stature and build. Plus, we also have an attempt at giving him a measure of intelligence in the eyes, especially compared to Goji's unblinking reptilian look from the year before. The shoulders and pectoral muscles especially, that section of the suit, really remind me of Kong. So the connective tissue between Toho's two primate monster suits is pretty plain when you're looking at it. The scale here... The with the uh, snowman being a human-sized monster, it means that he's not filmed in high speed and slowed down like a giant monster. So he's infil- instead filmed at normal speed. This does make him look a little more plain than Kong. Uh, doesn't have kind of the otherworldly, monstrous look that this normal filming technique allows. But it does suit the story, and the suit moves well, and it looks good. Again, black and white helps it out a little bit here. Ejima goes out to investigate this and ends up falling down a ravine where he's conveniently captured by Oba and the other bad guys. Now as I said, Ejima's played by legendary Toho player Akira Takarada, who of course was Ogata the year before in Gojira and would go on to appear in many Toho sci-fi films over the years, including uh, my personal favorite role of his, which is Fuji from Monster Zero. Takarada plays a straight-up hero here, well-suited to this story. Now, much like the snowman is something of a proto-Kong, Oba is a prototypical greedy Godzilla series villain lusting after the money that the snowman can bring him and not caring about who gets hurt in the process. We'd see this in um, other characters appearing in various villainous roles. Uh, We see a a lighthearted take on this with Mr. Taco in King Kong vs. Godzilla and then of course in uh, Godzilla vs. The Thing from 1964 is probably the best uh, representation of this character. Oba is played by Yoshio Kazugi, who appeared in uh, several Toho monster pictures. He plays the chief of Pharaoh Island under makeup in King Kong vs. Godzilla, but actually also appeared in The Seven Samurai and several other Kurosawa films. There's a lot of connections between uh, the Godzilla series, Toho series, um, science fiction in general, and Kurosawa, so I thought that was an interesting credit. Now, Wojima manages to escape from the bad guys, only to fall in the darkness again, uh, HSE topic, listeners, don't go mountaineering at night. It's just not a good idea. And he winds up in the village being doted on by Chica. Now, Chika is played by Akemi Nageshi, who would also appear in King Kong vs. Godzilla. She is the island girl whose young son is menaced by Oadaka uh, before King Kong comes out stomping. Now, for her kindness to an outsider, Chika gets verbally abused by the village elder And after she's been sent on a fool's errand so the other villagers can get rid of Ajima, she is beaten on screen by the Elder. This was frankly uncomfortable to watch, not dissimilar to the earring incident in Destroy All Monsters in our last episode because of the violence against a young woman. Here at least the Elder is not the hero of the story like it was in uh, Destroy All Monsters, but it's still very difficult to watch. It's upsetting uh, but sadly, probably not far from the truth for how this would have gone down. The villagers all then pray to their master, obviously the snowman, making him another in Toho's pantheon who does double duty as a monster and a god. Now, Ejima is strung up on a off of a cliff to die from exposure. This is done using our rear projection technique to have him uh, to appear to have him hanging far off the ground. He's saved by the snowman, who unties him and then moves on. The scene is pretty efficient in that it portrays the snowman as non-violent and not all that interested in people. This is further enforced as we are introduced to the young snowman. We'll call him Snowboy for all discussion. Snowboy is slightly less convincing as a special effect. For all the world, he reminds me of that bit in When the Kid is Being Turned Into a Monkey in the original Jumanji. If anyone remembers that one. Uh, Naoba's men find Chica, they convince her that, yeah, we're part of that guy's group, and they, uh, get her to tell them the location of the snowman's cave. After uh, her troubles, they bribe her with a shiny gold watch. Of course, this watch turns out to be a bane, as Chica gets beaten again in the village because she has it. It's, it's just ridiculous. Naoba and his men, they capture the snowboy, they use him as bait to get the snowman. Uh, he, uh, he puts up a fight, but gets captured in a net, and as I said, then gets knocked out with some movie ether. Oba and his men let the snowboy go, and then they encounter the villagers who are mad that they've captured their master, and Oba shoots the elder. Good riddance, I say. Even as he lays dying, and Chica tries to comfort him, he blames Chica for letting him get shot. Just let him bleed out, girl. Sheesh. Just ridiculous. Now Snowboy ends up getting captured while trying to bust Snowman out of the truck. Uh, But Snowman is more effective, he throttles the driver through the bars and causes the second truck to crash down a cliff. Now from there they break out of the truck and of course Snowboy is shot and raging snowman who lifts Oba above his head and then throws him down the cliff. Now this is achieved through a double exposure showing not only Oba's fall, which makes sense, but also him being held up above the snowman's head which I thought was kind of odd. Normally you'd do uh, a monster picking somebody up in the camera. So I was thinking that, you know, perhaps in the heavy suit, it was not feasible to lift someone over the monster's head. Maybe they couldn't get the arms up uh, in the right angle to support someone. In any event, it's effective, if obviously a double exposure, but, you know, fine, it's 1955, as Oba goes all the way down to his death. And proving that primate monsters have feelings we get the sad shot of Snowman carrying Snowboy's lifeless body back to the cave. So it is really unsurprising when he attacks the village uh, in his rage. Although, if I'm being honest, a fairly human-sized monster knocking over huts and primitive dwellings is very amusing in comparison to what we would normally see from Toho. Uh, you know, we normally expect a giant monster kicking them over, not a human-sized monster shaking them and knocking them over. Uh, very, uh, <laughs> really brought a smile to my face. Now, the film is into high gear now as the snowman kidnaps Michiko and the crew sets out to recover. Now, luckily for both the expedition and the viewer, we find Takano's journal and the poisonous mushrooms right next to each other. This whole sequence in this really dark, spooky cave reminded me a lot of the first half of Rodan, where caves are the, the major creepy set piece that's used. And in black and white, it's really well executed, very claustrophobic and creepy. Adding to this creep factor is a special effects shot we get of the snowman climbing the cave wall, which is actually done in stop motion. Now Toho experimented with stop motion from time to time, but coming at this moment in the film, right at the climax, it was a legitimate surprise for me and I was very impressed. Tsuburaya had tried to do other stop motion in the film, The, the big one that I've always read is the truck crashing down the cliff. Uh, but this is the one which worked, and this this is the one that made it into the film. Its presence is very much appreciated. Very cool scene, and it, it has this, um, you know, we're used to seeing the snowman moving like an animal, and here he moves a little bit uh, otherworldly, and it's very, very effective. Now things wrap up quickly uh, with Chica and the snowman plunging down into the sulfur pit. And then uh, back in the present, uh, we get the wraparound story. The re- reporter basically wraps it all up. There's no reflection from any of the characters, or even really an attempt at a happy ending. Uh, simply a somber ending for a somber film. So it's it's it suits it. Now overall, Half Human's a, a well-made, but uneven film. It's doubtlessly elevated because of its rare or lost status. Now compared to Gojira, it seems to be trying to be a bit more Western in its approach. And it retains sympathy for the hominid monster, which is, ultimately, i found, a trope of monster apes and primates in film in general. The depiction of the villagers is very dated, although if I'm being honest with myself, their cruel treatment of Chica rings true from a story perspective, so I can understand that, but I can see the other side of that argument also. Ultimately, I feel that if this film had been more readily available over the years and not receive the, the attention that it has due to its internal banning from Toho, Half-Human would be remembered as an early Toho monster curio, but not one of the essential films in their science fiction filmography. It's still worth watching if you can track it down, and that's the key point right there. If you would like to own Half-Human, good luck. Now, owing to its internal banned status, Toho has never released a copy of the Japanese version of Half-Human on home media. There was a VHS of the US version of one point, although it is extremely hard to find. Uh, I believe there was a DVD version of the US version at one point, but again, it is out of print and difficult to find. I I did a, a search of secondary sellers on Amazon and on eBay and was not able to find any commercial releases Of The American version of half-human now. I was able to get a bootleg copy from cult action You can check them out at www.cultaction.com Which appropriately is the same site where I got my copy of prophecies of Nostradamus And if you look hard enough, you might find it on an archive on the internet just saying so uh, What did you guys think have any of y'all out there seen half-human? Are you interested in seeing Toho take on a, a, a abominable snowman story? Please write in, Directive at yahoo.com. I'd love to hear uh, anyone's thoughts on this, uh, this classic lost monster film from Toho. All right, I'm going to take a quick break, and we will be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Eons past. A monstrous hybrid of land and marine reptiles was sealed into a state of suspended animation. Slumbering through the fall of dinosaurs and the rise of man. But awakened by an undersea nuclear test, the creature returned to life. Now breathing the fires of radiation. Stan Lee presents Godzilla, King of the Monsters. All right, we are back on Earth Destruction Directive. Avengers number 198 was published by the Marvel Comics Group. And its cover dated August 1980, was released on or about May 20th, 1980. Hat tip to Mike's Amazing World of Comics at uh, dcindexes.com and mikesamazingworld.com. Our cover is by George Perez and Terry Austin and depicts uh, Earth's Mightiest Heroes, the Avengers, uh, locked in combat high above the sky of New York with the Red Ronin and has the copy Red Ronin on the Rampage. And there's a typo. Because it says Red Ronan, like Ronan the Accuser, R-O-N-A-N, instead of Red Ronan, R-O-N-I-N, like his actual name, but eh, you know. The character Ronan the Accuser had been around a lot longer than Red Ronan, so, I mean, it's unfortunate, but that's okay. Our writer is David Michelinie, our penciler George Perez. Inker is Daniel Green, our letterer is John Costanza. Our uh, colorists are Carl Gafford and Ben Sean, the editor is Jim Salkrup, and our title is Better Red Than Ronin, and our synopsis is adapted from marvel.wikia.com. As Red Ronin makes its way towards New York, it is attacked by the Avengers and the shieldcraft behemoth, commanded by Nick Fury. Invading the giant robot's cockpit, Yellow Jacket and the Wasp learn that its deranged pilot, Dr. Cowan believes mankind to be ruled by fear and intends to resolve matters by using the Red Ronin to attack the USSR. This, he hopes, will bring about World War III, uniting humanity in a common cause. Cowan expels a tiny duo and Red Ronin continues to march towards the coast, defying all efforts to stop it. Concocting a last ditch plan, the heroes channel Behemoth's full power through Iron Man's armor into the robot. Iron Man and the SHIELD ship are knocked out of action as is Dr. Cowan, but the now pilotless Red Ronin rises unharmed and continues on its way. Its circuits locked on Cowan's final command Destroy! Soon afterward, Hawkeye, investigating a disturbance at Cross Technological Enterprises, is dismayed to find himself facing the Mechanical Colossus. The heat gets turned up for the assemblers this time out, folks. As the Red Ronin plot shifts into high gear, how was the issue overall? Let's get right into the notes. Now the cover actually reminds me a little bit of the cover to Godzilla 23 which we covered a few months back where we have a giant figure in the background and the heroes at different levels of both the fore and mid-ground. I love Red Ronin slashing Iron Man with his sword while also crushing Vision in his other hand though it does beg the question, couldn't Vision just phase through? Uh, Now, frankly, I may be more prone, but if I see the Avengers fighting a giant robot, I'm probably buying your comic book. I'm just saying. Uh, Page one is our splash page. After that exciting, action-packed cover, we get Beast and Wonder Man walking down the street singing. Now, please don't misunderstand. It's a beautiful street scene by Perez, and once more, uh, Simon and Hank's fashion choices are a little suspicious, as uh, Simon is wearing what appears to be a a blue, dark blue plaid shirt and a uh, purple leisure suit. And uh, Hank is wearing a brown suit with uh, a yellow shirt with gigantic lapels. And uh, like black rings all over it. And they're just walking down the middle of the street here. It's a lovely shot, but uh, not what I necessarily expected as the splash page. Uh, over on page two, panel five, we see Red Ronin in the Hudson River. Uh, standing, it, the water level is... At like mid-calf, that's how tall he is. It's ridiculous and wonderful all at the same time. The scale is fantastic. I really like the coloring in this, uh, where the foreground is in yellow and red. It contrasts very nicely with the blue-green water. And of course, Red Runner himself is towering above everything. Really a nice panel that, that gets the story started here. Uh, over on page three, panels one through four, Hank and Simon are pulled up into the Quinjet by clamp cables that zoop down, grab them, and pull them up. Now, this is a legitimate question. Avengers readers readers from this era, was this a common thing for the Quinjets? Did they do this? I mean, I'm sure it was a fast way to grab somebody, but really, how often does this come up? I'm I'm legitimately asking. I've never read. uh, I've read a lot of... I've read, like, up to, like, 120 in Avengers in The Essentials. And I've read a lot of later stuff, like in the, the the 200s and 300s. But this exact era, I've not read. So I'm I'm curious if that was actually a thing that happened with the Quinjets. Um, panel 4 on that page. Jocasta's rear end is shown rather lovingly. I mean, it's just, damn, girl. Now, if nothing else, this does demonstrate that Perez regards Jocasta like any other female character and did not discriminate against her because she was an android. She's shown to be extremely curvy. Now, then down the page on uh, panel six, what's good for the goose is good for the gander as Simon is shown topless with all his hairy-chested manliness on display. Meow! Now, putting sexual tensions aside for a moment and moving over to page six, Uh, Red Ronin walks through a landfill and narrowly avoids crushing the shack of the attendant. Uh, because while Dr. Cowan is looking to start World War III, he's not looking to hurt anyone. Right. (laughs) This leads, this sequence leads right up into page seven, which is where the action starts. Now, Viz tries to phase through Red Ronin. Um, but ends up getting zapped by a proton field, a defensive measure. So maybe that's why he couldn't phase through him on the cover. Hmm? Uh, we got a couple ads and we turn over to uh, pages 10 and 11, where all of the Avengers are letting loose on Red Ronin, including Wonder Man, Jocasta, and Beast, trying to gain entry through an access port on his leg. Now, Wonder Man goes down to a defense system by rushing in, should have listened to Jocasta, who said, wait a minute. Uh, but now they are all stuck inside Red Ronan's foot. Uh, <laughs> which I just thought was a really a poor place to be, but that's where they are now. Uh, the, ba- the bottom half of page 11, reinforcements arrive in the form of Behemoth. Uh, which, it's, it's Behemoth. I love that Behemoth shows up here. Uh, but Dum Dum Duggan is not in command today. Nope, it's Nick Fury himself commanding the behemoth. That's how much of a big deal this rogue uh, Red Ronin is to shield. I thought that was really neat. Over now on uh, page 14, uh, Wasp and the Yellow Jacket, they infiltrate the command center uh, of Red Ronin. They try to get Cowan to give up. Now, Wasp has a really nicely colored uh, white and blue costume on. It's mostly a, um, a white bodice with uh, some blue trim around it. But what I don't like, it's got the Zack Ryder thing going on. It's got half tights. One leg is a full leg. One is a non-leg. It's like if if it had been full leg, so a white bodice and then the blue gloves and then blue leggings and boots, it would have looked really sharp. Or if it didn't have the leggings, it was just a white bodice, blue gloves and blue boots. It would have looked really nice. It's like, pick one or the other, Janet. This this is ridiculous. I'm sorry. I mean, I know she's all fashionable and it's a lovely costume, but you got, you got to pick a leg. I'm just saying. Now, page 15, panel four, Cowan runs down his motivation, uh, which is essentially that existential horrors of the real world have made fear the primary motivator. So he plans to start World War III with the Soviet Union to unite the world in a common cause. Now, I have to ask the question. I would not be a podcaster worth my salt if I didn't ask the question. Did Alan Moore read this comic when he was coming up with Watchmen? Does anyone know the answer to that? I really want to know. I mean, it's possible, right? This is a several years before Watchmen. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Email me. You know. Uh Anyway, Comics Conspiracy is notwithstanding. Page 16, uh, panel 2. Hank and Janet are sucked out of Red Ronin via an exhaust vent. That's pretty embarrassing. I'm just saying. I I know something similar happens to Ant-Man and Captain America in Civil War. It's just, I mean, but at least that's a fire suppression system and not an exhaust fan. Um, panel four, sort of like the cover here, or panel five, I should say. It's a big, uh, co- big uh, panel at the bottom. Uh, sort of a replay of the cover. Uh, with Red Ronin dominating the skyline and the Avengers and the Behemoth around him. We see him slashing uh, with his energy sword trying to knock people down. Uh, very nice panel here. I mean, again, I, I this I said this kind of the last time. This is atypical for uh, the Avengers to fight a giant foe. So it's really, I, I just like the change up in it. It's very neat. Uh, page 17 and then we move on to uh, page 19 as well. Uh, There's an ad in the middle there. This is our interlude uh, with Carol Danvers and the Scarlet Witch and Carol's pregnancy, which was introduced uh, last issue. Uh, As I said, the last issue, you know, this subplot, it's going to resolve itself with no complications or issues whatsoever. Uh, So we're just going to move on, okay? Uh, Page 22 has a very interesting uh, layout of, uh, of panels in the grid in that it's eight panels in a grid. And each one is half as tall as the page, so we get four on the top and four on the bottom. But they're very rigidly done in this grid. It's, um, I, I like it. It's just I don't know that I've ever seen another uh, or a similar type of layout like this. At least not that I can remember. You know, normally you'd see, um, you know, a four-panel grid or a nine-panel grid. But this eight-panel grid is a very interesting approach, and uh, it does make for some really nice um, images that Perez uses of. Iron Man attacking Red Ronin and uh, Behemoth hitting him in the back and stuff, uh, some other action like that. So it's really nice. Panel three, especially, is a wonderful Iron Man panel as he is zooming up and he's um, uh, his armor is smoking from the shoulders. He says, Whoa, even with my armor's limited laser resistance, that blade almost scorched me. I'd better watch out. Yeah, really, really nice panel. Of course, I'm an Iron Man fan, so I may be more prone, but really, really good saw to you. Uh, Over on to page 26. We get a couple more ads in the middle. Um, Panels 4 and 5 take up about two-thirds of the page. And uh, Iron Man channels all the electrical energy in the behemoth uh, reserves to try and shut down Red Ronin. Scorching yellow and orange colors here. Lots of line work and Kirby crackle everywhere. Really impressive page showing off the amount of energy that's being thrown around. Very Marvel sort of panel. It really gives me a strong Kirby vibe with with all the Kirby Crackle, but also the posing of Iron Man in panel four, where his arms are out to the side, but his fists are pointed forward, and he's got all the wires connected to him, and we see uh, the uh, whiplashes of energy coming out of his Unibeam, and those energy whiplashes are bordered by Kirby Crackle. And then the the main panel here, where we see Behemoth, and we see a tiny little Iron Man, and then we see Red Ronin. Red Ronin is rearing back, and his hand, his left hand, is a little bit closer to the front of the panel, and so his left hand's a little bit larger as he falls backwards. It's not quite a Kirby hand, but it's sort of similar. It's, this This is just a wonderful page, and these two panels I really liked. I love the color. These would not look anywhere near as good in black and white. I'm normally an advocate. I love black and white art, especially superhero art, but the the color here... Um, Gafford and, uh, Ben do a, or excuse me, Gafford and Sean, uh, do a great job here. I've, I've, I've raved about Carl Gafford's coloring on, back on Shonen Warrior, wrote Shogun Warriors, easy for me to say, and another great job by him and, uh, Ben Sean here. Next page, panel two, in the aftermath, Iron Man is actually hanging limp from the electrical cables. For all the world, this reminds me of the cover to Iron Man number 232, which is the epilogue to Armor Wars you know, Star Wars, and it has Tony hanging in a similar fashion, albeit in that one he's wearing the Silver Centurion armor. Very, um, you've you probably, go Google, put it in your Google machine, you'll recognize that cover as soon as you see it, if you're a Marvel fan. Uh, over on page 30 we get the epilogue with Hawkeye, and uh, Hawkeye, uh, op- you know, goes to take a look and ends up looking all the way up at Red Ronin, and his uh, last response is, holy! And it stops. Now, look, a level with everybody here. I like Hawkeye. Hawkeye's a great Avenger, okay? But he seems a little bit outmatched by Red Ronin. I'm just saying. Do with that what you will. So, <sighs> bullpen Bolton's page is uh, primarily the mighty Marvel checklist, so that takes up a good portion of it. Uh, Stan's soapbox, uh, this is one of those uh, soapboxes where Stan is vamping for time as he is wont to do in these. Uh, So we asked a reader to write in and tell him what they like and don't like uh, about Marvel's uh, cartoon output, which was starting to ramp up at this time, uh, along with some plugs for Epic. Not the most memorable stand soapbox. I don't see them uh, reprinting this one as uh, Marvel has taken to do in their modern books. I'm not going to touch the controversy around that. I'm just saying this one seems unlikely candidate for that. Uh, The letters page... Um, actually has three letters from readers in Canada, which seems just statistically unlikely to me, but there you go. Not complaining about that, just seems odd that you'd get, you know, you most times you get letter columns, there's no international letters, and here we not only get three international letters, but three of them, they're all from the same country. So that was a little strange. Um... The, uh, the and that the bottom of the um, must have been a little bit left over at the bottom underneath the special announcement for fringe con uh, We do get a little very small house ad uh, for Marvel two-in-one always appreciate uh, getting a little bit of love for Marvel two-in-one Flipping through ads real quick um, Get the hodgepodge ad in the inside front cover. Uh, we get some H.O. scale soldiers uh, great whoppers from history. I do like whoppers. Uh, they're they're uh not not the, the greatest candy of all time, but uh, you know they're they're I still like them. Uh, we got Greg Gregory, the big bad vampire bat. Put your finger in his mouth and see what happens when you squeeze him. You can look at his see through belly and see the red liquid flow. He's big. He's fearsome. But best of all, he's fun. Uh, I I have uh, never seen Gregory the vampire bat, but I have seen his ad a few times. Just seems like it's limited in, in play value, I guess. But then again, I love Mad Balls, and those are somewhat limited in play value, right? When you're a kid, you love, a lot of kids love gross stuff. So, uh, Bubble Yum. Um, this, I did like this one. Here's a dazzling offer from the Mighty Marvel Glamazons. It's a subscription house ad, but it features all the ladies. It's got the Dazzler, the She-Hulk, and Spider-Woman. All uh, hawking their wares here. It says get the first four issues of your Marvel comic subscription free. I just think it's great that we got all the ladies on the, the house ad here. That's really neat. Uh, and then we get a, another house ad for fun and games. Uh, the, uh, Stan was talking about fun and games the last issue. And uh, we get, again, some of the usual suspects. We get uh, Spidey, Hulk, Cap, the thing. But we also get Iron Man and Spider-Woman. So that was nice. And, you know, many, about a decade ago, I think it was, Brian Michael Bendis, Said that Spider-Woman had the greatest hair in comics. And man, looking at these pictures, I got to agree. Her hair is fabulous. It's just so, so luscious. I love it. I mean, you know, you can do what you want with costumes. But it's just, she, you know, Jessica needs to have the the big hair thing going on, I think. That's my personal opinion. I think it's a key part of her look. Um, We get a uh, hostess ad for the Hulk versus the Roller Disco Devils. I didn't realize. I thought this was a repeated one. I don't think we've done the Roller Disco Devils. I think we may need to do a dramatic reading of this, and I think it would go a little something like this. The Roller Disco Devils have been terrifying the town. Yeah, baby. Yeah, woo-woo! Wow, things are really bad. Yeah, our moms won't let us out of the house. We can't even buy some Hostess fruit pies. Someone else is very upset by the devils. Hulk, not like loud noise. You like to roll? Okay, roll! Now, street safe and quiet. Yay, hey, now we can get all the hostess fruit pies we want. Thanks, Hulk. I like the real fruit filling. Mmm, apple, cherry, peach, too. Wow, that's great crust. Why can't all humans be nice? Like, Hostess Fruit Pies. You get a big delight in every bite of Hostess Fruit Pies. Yeah. Um, these, um, uh, yeah, it's disco. It's disco, and the Hulk hates disco. So, uh, can he really be that much of a monster if he hates disco? Especially disco punks on roller skates with boomboxes. Um... Yeah, uh, I don't I don't know what to make of this other than the lead guy is wearing a yellow shirt with flowers on it. And he's wearing, I guess they're supposed to be blue jeans, but they're like blue with the black shading. So he's sort of colored like Luke Cage, at least his his outfit is. And I suspect that Luke Cage would probably give this guy a headache for the rest of his life if he ever uh, skated through uh, or by the Gem Theater. I'm, again just putting that out there. This this is strange even for a hostess ad. Mm. Um, that's about it. Be a draftsman, BMX. Here's a special deal with Schwinn uh, on the back cover. No, no, really, great ads this time other than that hostess ad. So, uh, overall, I like this issue quite a bit. Uh, plenty of action to make up for the lack of action in the last issue. Uh, Red Ronan, as I said, a different type of threat compared to the normal enemies that the Avengers fight. I'm curious how they're going to wrap this up in the next issue because this this ends in 199. Does it continue into 200? Now the plot of Doctor Cowan. Emulating in the broadest of strokes the plot of Watchmen is really, really funny to me. But of course, one could always go back to Architects of Fear from The Outer Limits if to use the same idea, right? So uh, all that said, this is a fun issue. I really enjoyed reading it. Very much looking forward to reading the conclusion. If you would like to read this and you don't want to track down the uh, the, the single issue, uh, you can find it reprinted in Essential Avengers, now, Volume 9 from 2000. It is also included in the Marvel Masterworks for Ms. Marvel Hardcover, Volume 2. I'm guessing, uh, I don't know if it's the whole book or just the Carol pages. Um, if someone has that Ms. Marvel masterworks, can you please email in and let me know? I didn't think of that until just now. A lot of times those masterworks will include whole issues, but for something like this, where she's not involved in the rest of the story, would they only print the two pages? That's, that's I'm, I'm really curious now. If anyone knows the answer to that, please email Directive at yahoo.com. Even if you don't know the answer to that, have you read this story? Do you like seeing Red Ronin tangle with the Avengers? Email Directive at yahoo.com. We'll talk about it here on the show. Okay, I'm going to take a real quick break. We're going to come right back and finish up the show here on Earth Destruction Directive. Here at Quark's, customer satisfaction is our primary concern. I'd say we just found our way into a wormhole. I'm Kira Norris. Lieutenant Commander Worf reporting for duty, sir. You're the best crew any captain ever had. This may be the last time we're all together. This will shortly become a leading center of commerce and of scientific exploration. And for Starfleet, one of our most important posts. It is quite simply, Commander, the journey you have always been destined. The sensors are not functioning. We've lost all contact with the space station. What the hell is happening out there. Shields up. <laughs> Damage report. Battle stations. I'm Captain Benjamin Sisko. Welcome to Deep Space Nine. Listen to the prophets. A Deep Space Nine Two True Freaks presentation with Sean Engel and Andrew Lale. And now with 100% more Paul Spataro. All right, we are back on Earth Destruction Directive. And now it's time for listener feedback. And if you would like to be on the listener feedback, please get in touch with the show. You can email us at Directive at yahoo.com. You can um, uh, message me on Twitter at El Giacone. You can get us on Facebook. Uh, I'll listen to the outro of the show. It'll have all the information for getting in touch with uh, with the podcast. So our first email is... Uh, from my brother, Jason Jackanetti, Hello Jay, and is entitled episode number 72. And Jace writes Hey, Luke, so episode number 72 is an end. It's crazy to think that Godzilla vs. Destroyer was the end of that era of Godzilla, but it left us with hope. Now, a lot changed after Godzilla's Junior's Roar. But we have the luxury of looking back now to know what eventually happens. But at the time, it was powerful and potent. Absolutely. I agree with that completely, Jay. At the, the end like that, to leave us on that that message of hope that Godzilla ultimately can never really go away, uh, I thought was a master stroke. And, and one, of the, uh, one of the parts I really, really liked and I think holds up still, even knowing what comes after. Uh, Jay continues, the burning Godzilla has become so iconic over the years, but that always seemed like it was designed to be that way. The colors alone are designed to make this suit unlike any other Godzilla seen previously. The eyes alone evoke a feeling of fire, but also rage. The burning Godzilla is not just that he is going nuclear, but that he is full of rage. Maybe people don't agree with that, but he is not Gamera. He is not man's friend. He battles the creatures that are present, but he is not doing it because he is there to be the protector. He is a force of nature. I think we see this over the last few films of this era. I agree with that. I mean, especially when you, when you consider that um, uh, the, the events that happened prior to Godzilla vs. Destoroyah um, with Birth Island. Being destroyed and uh, Baby G lost, you know he's out wandering around. And again, Godzilla is this this inexorable force. He just keeps going. And I, I agree. And again, red being the color of anger, it is a, a a perfectly valid reading that he is full of rage. And you know, especially towards the end when um, uh, Junior is killed by Destoroyah, there's nothing but rage anymore. The only other member of his species, the only companionship that this Godzilla has ever had has just been killed. And all there is now is is violence. It's 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 um you know again, that the burning g, as you say, is iconic, and, and we you know that we both agree that word get used gets used too much, but I, I don't think there's any question that burning g is an iconic look. And uh, I, I definitely can agree with the, the aspect of it being an emotional fire that is burning in inside of Godzilla along with a nuclear fire. Uh, Jay continues, As for Destoroyah, the design is outstanding. I've always loved that final form. I consider it, along with Space Godzilla and Biolanti, as some of the best designs ever in Godzilla films. I definitely like that they went away from Godzilla's ghost idea and made Destoroyah its own entity, even if it does call back to the original film. I think it's funny that Space Godzilla and Biollante do have some design um in common with, like, their jawline and the fact that they're both um, doppelgangers of sorts to Godzilla, but then Destoroyah is completely away from that. He has definitely his, his own look to that. And I I agree. I love all three of those designs. I love Space Godzilla. He's just such a... He's such a Showa monster living in a Heisei world, you know? Uh, and Biolante, I mean, you know, a, a plant monster that goes from being um, this beautiful, um, you know, quiet rosebush to this hyper-violent, monstrous hybrid is is just such a wonderful juxtaposition. And we talked about this on the Destroy episode. I, I really like that form. It goes in a different direction. Um, I like the idea of him being taking on the different forms, the different aggregates. And then that final one is so monstrous and demonic. It really is a great final foe for the, the Heisei Godzilla. Uh, Jay finishes up, I did not want to ramble too much. You listen to this show. I'm the one rambling. Thank you very much. But just wanted to say that I was happy to hear it covered, as it has always been one of my favorites. Keep up the great work and keep them stomping. Signed, Jason. Of course, Jason is my uh, my brother. Uh, he's been watching Godzilla's with me for a long time. Uh, you can hear Jay over on uh, the Bots, Bugs, and Babes uh, podcast, uh, also here on Two True Freaks, as, long, as well as being my co-host of course, on The Vault of Starbling Monster or Tales of Terror, and Get Back to the Wrestling, also on uh, Tuchu Freaks Podcast Network. So, Jay, thank you very much for writing in. Great stuff here with uh, Destroya. I know it's one of your favorites. Glad you enjoyed the episode. Our next email comes from a long listener and friend of the show, Jack Bond. And Jack writes, Varon Special Attack, The Photobomb. Thanks for the excellent coverage of Destroy All Monsters. Your advice to visualize Manda's unshown rampage and Baragon replacing Godzilla was something I hadn't considered. Applying that advice to my man, Varan, I now picture him spending the time of the monster attacks zipping around from city to city, trying to get in the background of news coverage. Is he like the guy with the horse head running up and down the street during that supposed hurricane? <laughs> Jack continues, I must be spoiled when it comes to monster movie releases these days. I was surprised you didn't mention that ADV's release was a menu-less, extra list, chapter-less, VHS on DVD presentation. Um, I I had I had meant to to mention that, and I, I must have just overlooked it when I was recording it because I, I still have it. I have that ADV one, and yeah, it's not a great disc by any means. As I said, the best part of that release. Besides simply the fact that it was Destroy All Monsters on DVD, which was a big deal because that movie was relatively hard to find on VHS uh, for a long time. So getting on DVD was just a boon, even if it was a really not good (laughs) DVD release. But as I said, was the C D soundtrack, and that's why I still have that that copy, that anniversary one with the C D. But yeah, it it's essentially um, you know, like you see a, a cheap um like a, a a real cheap DVD release where it just looks like a VHS that's been ripped and then burned onto a DVD. It I said no menus, no chapter stops even. No chapter stops. That's the one that's always astounds me. The cheapest DVD you'll find, public domain stuff, will still have chapter stops, but this one didn't. Uh Jack continues, cheap as I am, I was convinced to upgrade to Tokyo Shock by the rumor that it was following classics media style for their releases with the Japanese, international, and US versions. But while I was trying to verify that rumor, the first printing disappeared. Yeah, it's you know, these these Godzilla films are um they're 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 evergreen, right? That that's the term I've always heard thrown around ever since it was universal in the run-up to I want to say the Jackson Kong, when they released King Kong vs. Godzilla and King Kong Escapes on DVD for the first time, and they were bare bones releases, no, no question, they had chapter stops, just saying, but they were bare bones releases, and I remember the press release at the time saying that these were evergreen releases that will always be popular to an extent because of the longevity of the character of King Kong. And it's the same with Godzilla, you know. I, I mean, I understand dealing with Toho. You got to deal with the rights, got to deal with licenses, all that. I, I understand that. But it seems to me that if you've got a a a, one, the, a a DVD release or a Blu-ray release of one of the Godzilla films, that you could keep that in print because it must sell. I mean, I would think it would sell enough that it would be worthwhile to keep it in print. I mean, there's enough Godzilla fans and enough new Godzilla fans that are. I mean, join any Facebook group about Godzilla, and you got, "Oh, I I just started getting into Godzilla last year," which is, a, it's amazing to me, who's been a Godzilla fan for thirty, you know, for thirty five years. Oh my God, saying it out loud. Oh, oh okay, never. I'll get back to Jack's email. Um, but but you know, but you understand what I'm saying is that you know it, it seems to me like it would it would make sense and behoove these companies to keep these films in print. So that they could continue to release them and, and sell more copies. But, you know, it's it's a complex business. And Destroy All Monsters just seems to have an odd track record with that for whatever reason. For one, that is, I mean, everybody knows of it, even if you've never seen it. The name is so evocative, that U.S. name. Um, and uh, when they released the video game Destroy All Monsters Melee, that helped a lot. with the recognition of the name uh, so yeah, hopefully we we'll, we can get that, um, you know. Oh, I hope you were able to get a, a good copy of, of which release you were looking for, Jack. Um, just to finish up. Uh, Jack says, P.S. I'll be watching moon movies this July, Makes sense, and this will fit into Phase 3, the moon base, along with Battle in Outer Space and the ever-popular The X from Outer Space. Can you suggest any other tokusatsu? Signed, Jack. Now, one jumped into my mind immediately when I read your email, Jack, and that is Gamera vs. Zegra, the second-to-last of the Showa Gamera films, features the alien monster Zegra, the space monster Zegra, destroying a moon base. So, uh, I don't know if that's enough to qualify, but it's a moon base. And in a really bizarre twist, it's the only building destroyed in the movie. Uh, it's it's one of those rare Daikaiju movies that doesn't destroy a building, except this one small moon base. So, there you go. That That's my suggestion. I hope it helps. Uh, Jack, thank you very much for writing in. Uh, I know. Um, uh, yeah, I, I know you uh, always uh, appreciate uh, anything that deals with alien- with the machines. So I don't know. What did you think about the uh, um, the, um, the 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 UFOs? I don't know that we've ever discussed that. Uh, let me know what you think about that. Uh, and I do love the idea of Iran just jumping around it's like I'm here, I'm here, guys. Don't forget me. All right, that's uh, that's all the emails I've got for right now. If again, if you would like to be on the show, please email earthdestruction directive at yahoo.com. You can hit me up on Twitter, follow at Al Giacone. you can search me out on Facebook, first name Luke, last name EDD, eh, for Earth Destruction Directive, and you can get in touch with me there and we will uh do all your feedback here on the show Uh, so what is coming up next time for a big episode 75 of Earth Destruction Directive well it is for 75 we're gonna take a look at uh, a a film that is quite polarizing I think in the uh, Godzilla community we're going to be taking a look at Godzilla Final Wars and in honor of covering Godzilla Final Wars, we will have a very special guest on. I'm Not going to spoil who it is, uh, but will be not just my dulcet tones you'll be hearing, uh, but there'll be a, uh, another, um, uh, another podcaster on. This, uh, this individual reached out to me years ago when I started. it says, when you cover Final Wars, I want to do it with you. So you, we will be honoring that. Uh, so we're probably going to give the Marvel Comics coverage a break to uh, really cover Final Wars. Um, so, um, you know, again, so if you, if you want to watch Final Wars, send some free feedback. That's always welcome. Uh, again, uh, look forward to that coming up. Again, if you uh, want to get in touch with the show, listen to the outro. There's all sorts of ways to get in touch with us. And uh, I do want to say, as always, that all are welcome at Earth Destruction Directive. This show is for everybody. So if you want to be part of this show, you are welcome to be part of this show. All right, everybody. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you would enjoyed this episode. Please come back the next time for Godzilla Final Wars. And until then, keep them stomping. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you'd like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I'll read them on the show. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at two twotruefreaks.com.